0: Let's pray again together. As we go to prayer, just with the words, Psalm 145, where it says, The Lord is righteous in all His ways, and He's kind in all His deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to everyone who calls upon Him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear Him. He will hear their cry and save them. For the Lord keeps all who love him. Father, thank you for the precious and magnificent promises of your word, promises of your presence, promises of your comfort, promises that you are with us, Lord, on our our very best days and on our very worst. And Father, for for all the days that come in between, the ordinary days, the, the average days, the days where we don't necessarily see you doing something great and we're not necessarily seeking to overcome something awful. Father, just the assurance over and over in your word that the Lord our God is with us always, that he loves us, and that he he fulfills the desires of those who fear him. Father, I'm not sure we even begin to understand what that means, but Lord, we do know that the nearer we draw to you, the more we depend on you, the more we choose to trust you, the more trustworthy we find you to be. And fathers, we've sung your praise and worship as we've approached your throne of grace in prayer. Father, now we're going to open your word. And Father, my desire for, for myself, for all present and accounted for, Father, it, that it is not the words of a teacher we're listening to, but it is the, the voice of Jesus that we are listening for in and through the preaching of your word. Father, your, your word says of itself, what other holy book would say this, that the, the word of the cross, the preaching is, is foolishness to those who are perishing. Lord, it seems silly and unnecessary, but But, Father, we know that it's much more than that, that when Your Word is opened and Your Spirit is present, lives are changed, souls are saved. Father, wounds are healed and hopes are renewed. And, Lord, only You can do that, and we pray right now that You would. Father, that as we go to Your Word, that that Your Holy Spirit would be the one who guides us into all truth, who guards us from every error and misunderstanding, who delivers us, Father, from the baggage and the distractions both within us and around us, that Your Spirit in these moments together would help us, Lord, to see Jesus. Father, may we see him clearly, Jesus, this morning as we go to your word. May we see him only, the Lord Jesus, as we go to your word. And Father, when we leave in a little while, it won't be long till we're walking out the doors. I pray that it will be, Lord, regardless of our circumstances, that our hearts will be rejoicing. Not because we came to church and all our problems got solved and all the the wrongs of the world were made right. Father, in some ways, in that sense, nothing may change. But Father, our hope can be renewed because we know the one who sits on the throne. And He loves us with an everlasting love. His name is Jesus. And so, Father, it is for His glory and in His name that we ask all these things, praying together all of God's people said, Amen and Amen. You may be seated. And always, as always right now, as you're taking your seats, we'll let the boys and girls head out for Children's Church to go spend their time in God's Word. As I invite you, and I would invite you to do it right away if you are able to do so, turn with me in, in your Bible to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5 am going to continue, as it says on the screen behind me, following the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through his life and ministry as it was recorded for us in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 5 is where I want you to find, I want you to meet me. We've got a, a fairly significant portion of God's Word to look at today, but if you'll hang with me from start to finish. I think you're going to find that the Lord has some important and some powerful truths there for us. So Mark chapter 5 is where we're going to be. You may remember, if you've been here the past couple of Sundays, and you need to know, if you have not, that the section of Mark's gospel we're in right now is a section of miracles. Uh, Mark is recording for us or has recorded for us a series of four particular, not the only miracles Jesus ever did, but four really big ones. And each one, I've been telling you the last couple of Sundays, was chosen or recorded for us to show us a different dimension of the lordship of Jesus Christ, his authority over all things. We've seen already his authority over creation. We saw last time we were together his authority, excuse me, over evil this morning we're going to see his authority over two more things we're going to look at two miracles and rather than continue to set it up i'm just going to read the story to you and then we'll talk about it in the remaining minutes together i'm going to begin reading this morning mark chapter 5 verse 21 and i'm going to go all the way down through verse 43 the end of the chapter where this is what the scripture says it says when jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side. Remember, a couple of weeks ago, he was on the, uh, the Caperna- He was at, by Capernaum on one side of the Sea of Galilee, Jewish country. Uh, he went over by boat to the Gentile side, to the land of the Gerasenes. He's now come back to his home base in Capernaum, just so you know where he is. It says, when he did so, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up. And on seeing him, seeing Jesus, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him. And a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garment, I'll get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. "'Immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself "'that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, "'turned around in the crowd and said, "'Who touched my garments?' "'And his disciples said to him, "'You see the crowd pressing in on you, "'and you say, who touched me?' "'And Jesus looked around to see the woman who had done this. "'But the woman, fearing and trembling, "'aware of what had happened to her, "'came and fell down before him "'and told him the whole truth. "'And he said to her, "'Daughter, your faith has made you well. "'Go in peace and be healed of your affliction.' While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion, and people loudly weeping and wailing and entering, and he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is sleeping. They began laughing at him, by putting, but putting them all out, he, Jesus, took along the child's father and mother and the, his own companions and entered the room where the child was. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. And he, Jesus, gave them, those present, strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. You know, one of the very unique literary structures of the Gospel of Mark is Mark's use of what Bible scholars, textual critics, and students call the the sandwich structure of storytelling. All right, I'm not going to make you say that with me, but it's called the sandwich structure of storytelling. And what that means is this, one of Mark's unique writing storytelling styles is that he often, as he did in the passage we just read, begins telling a story. Here it's the story of Jairus who comes to to Jesus pleading for the life of his daughter. But then right in the middle of the story, with no warning whatsoever, he starts telling another story. In this case, uh, the story of the woman who approached Jesus with a hemorrhage. And he goes on to tell all of that story in great detail. And then he circles back around at the end to come back to the story he began with, telling us how that one finished too. And, and apparently, I've discovered something this week. Bible scholars love this sort of thing because they all write about it in their commentaries, and they point it out in their analysis. And, and, and what a wonderful thing it is that, that Mark tells stories in this way because of the way it heightens tension, and it's supposed to deepen our curiosity and, and cause us to wonder ever more as the stories are being told, just how Jesus is going to sweep in and, and, and save everyone's day. They think it's a big deal. I don't. Because while the the scholars find Mark's uh, use of the the sandwich structure of storytelling thrilling... I want you to know this morning that it is a homiletical nightmare for preachers like me who simply want to show up on Sunday morning, read the passage, tell you what it said, and help us apply it to our lives. And and I want you to know the reason I'm taking you through all of this information is because of the fact that because Mark used that technique here, he starts telling one story, he begins telling another, he comes back to the first one. I spent the vast majority of my prep time this week simply trying to figure out what in the world these two stories have to do with each other and why he would do it to a preacher like me. It's been <laughs> tough. I'm just here to tell you. And, and it'll probably show up in the rest of the sermon. I don't know. Maybe you'll see that that's where I spent all my time. But there's, there's two things going on here. There's two miracles taking place. Now, I know what the two miracles represent. One miracle is meant to, as you would imagine, demonstrate Jesus' authority over disease. And the other miracle, as we can see in this story, demonstrates the authority of Jesus over death. What I'm saying to you is I've been trying to figure out what do they have to do with each other? Why would Mark put them together? And I'm going to tell you this as well right up front. I'm not sure I I know yet, okay, exactly all the reasons why he did that. But in digging through that question and trying to figure out, here's what I came up with and what I'm going to deliver to you by the time we're done. Three similarities between these two stories. There are three, I don't know if this is Mark's main idea, but this is what I saw in it. Three similarities between these two miracle stories that I believe, if we look at them side by side, reveal something very important. They reveal to us or remind us, as the case may be, that Jesus really meant it when in another place in the Bible, he said that nothing, listen to me, nothing is impossible with God. That nothing is impossible with God. And the reason I see that as the primary message for us here this morning, because of the first similarity, the fact that, number one, these are two people, Jairus on one hand, the woman on the other, who both came to Jesus. Here's the first similarity in situations of extreme need. The first similarity between these two stories are they are instances or, or, or occasions of deep extreme need. And here's the way I want to show that to you. Because if you look at these two stories side by side, just consider for a moment all the many ways in which these two people who came to Jesus differed from each other. Because on one hand, you've got Jairus. Look at verses 22 and 23. It says he's one of the synagogue officials. And he came up, and on seeing Jesus, fell at his feet. And he implored him or begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter's at the point of death. Please come lay your hands on her so that she'll get well and live. Now, that's one person. But then we're told, beginning in verse 25, the other is a woman. She had a hemorrhage for 12 years. She'd endured much at the hands of many physicians. She'd spent all that she had and wasn't helped at all, but the cures actually made it worse. And after hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. Now think of all the distinctions if you just take the time to look between these two people. Now on the surface, the obvious one is one's a woman, the other's a man. But as you begin to dig deeper, you see one of them is anonymous and the other we know his name. One of them was powerless. She was a woman in that society. She was a sick woman in that society. The other one was powerful. He was a, if not the, some people believe, the leader of the Capernaum synagogue. That's a vast difference. Because of that, he, the powerful man, was socially well-connected. He was in charge. He had influence. He had relationships with other powerful people as the synagogue leader. She, however, though he was socially well-connected, she was socially isolated in every way. Because according to Jewish law, the fact that she had had this issue of a hemorrhage of bleeding that had been going on for 12 years meant she was perpetually, constantly, ceremonially unclean. That means she couldn't hang out with anybody. She's isolated. One's a religious leader, the other's a religious outcast. One's wealthy, the other's bankrupt. One had a daughter, this is an interesting little note. One had a daughter who'd brought him 12 years of happiness. And the other, if you paid attention to the story had spent those same 12 years enduring nothing but heartache and sorrow. 12 years. My point is simply this. They couldn't have been two more different people. It's just that they had one thing in common. Extreme what? Need. They had extreme need. And and that need, here's what I want you to see in the story. The fact that they were in that extreme need, though the reasons behind them were different, it actually brought these two people to the exact same literal place, the feet of Jesus Christ. The feet of Jesus. Verse 22, Jairus came up, and on seeing him, fell at his feet. Verse 33, the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what happened to her, came and fell down at his feet. Extreme need brought him to the feet of Jesus. And that goes straight to the second similarity between these two people. That in their extreme need, and and what we can see by the fact that their extreme need brought them both to the literal feet of Jesus is evidence of the fact that they shared these two people. Here's the second similarity, a singular hope. These are two people in extreme need, and in their need, they share a singular hope. Now, before I tell you what that hope is, let me just continue to, to talk about the two of them and their situations. Because while it's probably going to sound cynical for me to say this, I also think it's quite probable that neither of the two people in this story came to Jesus with pure motives or at least without the purest motives. They came to Jesus because they wanted help. They came to Jesus because they were in need. But take Jairus, for instance. The Bible tells us, verse 22 says, he is a synagogue official. That means that most likely he was a Pharisee. And if not himself, he ran around with the Pharisees. And if you've been here for this series, you know that the Pharisees hated Jesus. In fact, there was a, 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 some of them, maybe not all of them, but by this point, they had already begun making plans to put Jesus to death. And, and so even if Jairus wasn't, maybe didn't share that sentiment, maybe he wasn't that hateful or spiteful toward Jesus, I have to think that in that position, there was tremendous pressure to toe the party line, to, to go along to get along. Because Why? Because I've got a really good job. And if I make waves, I could lose it. He's part of the group that wants to kill Jesus. Jesus. But where do we find him in verse 22? At the feet of, begging for his daughter's life. And, and again, this sounds cynical, but you know what that tells me? That tells me that at least at this point, at least in part, Jairus' faith is a faith of convenience, right? I'm not going to make waves when it'll get me in trouble by, you know, by, by being kind of pro-Jesus, kind of, yeah, G- but when I'm in, a need, in need, when I got a problem, I know who can help, or I think I know I'd say his faith is a faith of, at least at this point, convenience. Now, the woman, on the other hand, look at verses 27 and 28. says that she, after hearing about Jesus, came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. Because she's thinking, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. You know what she's doing there? She's actually acting out upon an ancient superstition of that day. A common pagan superstition, and it was this. If you can touch the holy man's garment, you'll get his power. If you can touch the holy woman's cloak, her dress, her feet, then her power will be transmitted to you. That's what she's thinking here. In other words, while Jairus' faith is at least in part a faith of convenience, her faith, whatever it is, is a faith that is laced with superstition, not pure. But even so, aren't they both right where they need to be? They're right where they need to be. At the feet of Jesus, and here's the singular hope. Here's the hope that despite convenience and superstition brought him to Jesus, here's the hope they both shared. I believe Jesus can help. I don't know a lot about him. I don't know where he's from. I don't know his whole story. But based on what I've seen and heard, I believe, here's the hope. I believe Jesus can help. And here's why that's a big deal. Because that means Jairus and the woman are a whole lot like me. They're a whole lot like you. I'm gonna venture to guess. Because for, for most of us, most of us here, think about those of us here this morning who already know Jesus Christ. We've entered into a saving relationship with him, we've trusted in the blood of the cross for our salvation. I am going to guess that in most of our cases, maybe not all, but most, it wasn't pure love that brought us to Jesus. It wasn't gratitude that brought us to Jesus. It wasn't rock-solid theology that brought us to Jesus. I know what brought you to Jesus. Need brought you to Jesus. Need. There was something. Maybe there was a series of, and again, I know this isn't true for everybody, but it's true for most of us, and it is what keeps bringing us back to him. There was something. There was a series of somethings that convinced us, convinced you, even despite your doubts and your questions, I believe, or I think I believe, I want to believe, Jesus can help. Kent Hughes puts it this way, and I want you to remember this, maybe write it down. The reason that's so is because he says, quote, despair is commonly the prelude to grace. Did you know that? Despair is commonly the prelude to grace. You don't need grace till you know you've got a problem. You don't need grace till you realize you got a need. And that's where these people were. And when we finally get to that point, it's that singular hope. Again, though maybe uninformed, certainly imperfect. You know what the really cool thing is? That's enough for Jesus to work with. Did you know that? The belief that Jesus can help, the belief that He's the answer, even though you have more questions, right? even though you don't know all the theology in the world and you can't make your way through the Bible. I believe Jesus can help. That's where it starts for all of us. It's where it started here. And it's true, listen, it's true whether we're coming to him the first time for salvation or we're coming to him the millionth time because, oops, I did it again. I stumbled, I fell. I lost it, I got off track. I believe jesus can help i believe he's the answer to my problem and here's what we find when we do based on these two stories and the similarities between them the first similarity making them a lot like us is that both jairus and this woman they're in extreme need but that extreme need drives them to jesus with a singular hope i believe he can help i think he can help i want to think he can help And again, the reason I say that that much faith was enough is because what they found is that when they did, Jesus delivered to them, here's the third similarity between these two stories, an astonishing result. When we come in extreme need to Jesus with the hope, with the belief, the hope against hope maybe that he can help, Jesus, sooner or later, one way or another, delivers astonishing results. Now, and I really want you to listen to this. Before we dig into how these two stories ended, remember, they're miracles. I must affirm, even though maybe we all already know this deep down inside, that what happens in these two stories is not necessarily prescriptive for the way Jesus handles similar crises in our own lives. He doesn't heal every disease with a miracle. Sometimes He doesn't heal our diseases at all, He doesn't save every life that we're praying that he would. It doesn't always work that way. Sometimes we just know he's got another plan. And I want to make sure that you know that I know that before we talk about this. Sometimes he does. He's always got a plan, but it isn't always the same plan. And that's because there's a lot of mystery to the way he works and the things that he does. And I want to make sure that's out there on the table. Just sometimes he's up to something else we can't see. But... At the same time, there's some powerful lessons we can draw from these two unique stories that show us that Jesus is, in fact, in authority over both disease and death. Because here's the thing. In in bringing their needs to Jesus, we've established that already. In bringing these two people, bringing their needs to the feet of Jesus, here's something else I noticed about these two situations. That in both in the case of Jairus and the unnamed woman, when they came to Jesus with their need, do you know what Jesus did? He asked them for more than they expected. He asked them for more than they expected they were going to have to come up with, deliver, demonstrate, whatever. And here's what I mean by that Jesus asked them for more than they expected. Because just taking the stories in the order they come, here's what happened. Jairus, if you look, look at verse 23. He comes to Jesus expressing his faith up front. It says, he came to Jesus, fell at his feet, verse 22, and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come, lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. He's saying right up front, in front of everybody, I think you're the answer. I believe you can help. And in the moment, he gets exactly what he's after. Look at verse 24. He went off. Jesus went off with him. And a large crowd is following him. And Jairus has got to be thinking, what a relief, right? We're going to go get this problem solved. But then the woman shows up, right? And literally stops Jesus in his tracks. And, And the crowd surrounds him. Progress halts. Now what is Jairus? Even though Jesus has already begun working, what does Jairus have to do now? It's a four-letter word. It begins with W. Jairus has to wait. wait. And wait. And wait. 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 Jesus, you know there's a crisis, right? And, And as he's waiting, what's happening to the crisis? The crisis is getting worse. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, Jesus is still talking to the lady. Jesus is still dealing with the crowd. Jairus is going out of his mind. They came from the house of Jairus saying, your daughter has died. Let the teacher go. Now what's the implication? Because Jesus didn't bail. But now what's the implication? The implication is, Jairus, now you have to trust me for something more than healing. You have to trust that I still know what I'm doing. I'd say that's more than he expected to have to trust Jesus for. Now the woman, she's different. She wants to keep her need quiet. So she comes to Jesus as discreetly as you can in the middle of a crowd. For after verse 27, hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. And here's her thought. If I just touch his garment... I'll get well, and in the moment, she got what she wanted, right? She got well. That next verse says, immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body. The word for for knowing there is an experiential knowledge. She knew she had been healed of her affliction, and she's thinking, (laughs) easy in, easy out, right? Not so fast, says Jesus. Look at verse 30. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around and said, who touched my garments? Busted, right? (laughs) Out in the open. Who touched me? And his disciples are like, Jesus, really, there's like a thousand people here, and, and you're saying, who touched me? And Jesus, no, no, no. He looks around, verse 32, to see the woman who had done this. Here's what I want you to see. The woman, fearing and trembling, and aware of what had happened to her, she knows Jesus has just changed her life. She came and fell down before him, and here's the key she told him the whole truth. Here's my point. After granting her request, Jesus insisted on a public confession of what he'd done. Because you know, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, God raised him from the that's in our Bibles, right? You will be saved. And I'm not saying she had to confess in order to be saved, but he's saying, listen, you need to tell. And this is the Psalms we've been looking at this morning, all these different Psalms we've been reading. Tell others the great thing God has done for you. I would submit to you this morning she wasn't expecting that. I got to tell a thousand people or however many right now what Jesus did for me, and you're scared to get baptized, right? She is on the spot. And Jesus says, tell them what I did. Tell them what I did. Both people are asked for more than they expected. But you know what else is true? And here's where we'll begin to tie all this together. Because they were both willing to do the more than was expected Jesus asked for, both of them secondly received more than they imagined. You see that in the story? Both of them received more than they imagined. Let's wrap up the the woman's story first. Verse 33, it says, She came fearing and trembling. She's aware of what happened to her. She came and fell down before him, told him the whole truth. And Jesus said to her, Daughter, that's a big deal. You know it signifies? New relationship. You were woman, now you're daughter. You have just been ushered into a relationship through Jesus with the Most High God. You're his daughter. Your faith has made you well. It wasn't much, and it wasn't even pure, but it was placed in the right place. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. And the reason I know she got more than she bargained for is because the word that Mark used there for healed is the same Greek New Testament word that's used almost every time for saved. You have been saved. It's not just that your body got fixed. Your soul got redeemed. You did. Jesus did more than she ever imagined. She just wanted to get well and not be an outcast. She was adopted into God's forever family. Now that's mere prelude to what happened next. Verse 38, when they came to the house of the synagogue official, Jairus, and he, Jesus, saw a commotion, and people loudly weeping and wailing in the ancient Jewish custom. And entering in, Jesus said to them, Now coming from anybody other than Jesus, and in the moment it sounded like mockery, why make a commotion and weep? The child's just sleeping. And they began laughing at him. but putting them all out, the mockers, the laughers, the disbelievers, he took the child's father and mother and his own companions and went in the room where the child was. Now remember something. They don't know what we know about Jesus. Jesus hasn't raised anybody from the dead yet. Jesus didn't go to the grave and come back on the third day yet. So who knows what they're thinking who knows? We can't presume we know what they're thinking when in verse 41, he takes her by the hand and says to her, Talitha kum, which translated, Tim Keller says, literally means, honey, get up. That beautiful. Takes her by the hand. Honey, get up. Didn't scream, didn't yell, didn't put on a show. Just get up. And immediately she did and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And as we would expect, everyone there was literally, the word means, out of their mind. (laughs) I don't know what you call those two stories. Jairus, he comes to Jesus for healing. He gets a resurrection. I call that astonishing. More, he had to wait, but it was more than he imagined. More than he imagined. You know, A.W. Tozer once said, and you've heard me say it up here before, that And I want you to think about this. He said, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Who you think he is, what you think he's like. That's true. What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. This morning, I'm going to be so bold as to, based on what we've just seen here in Mark chapter 5, add to Tozer and add this, I believe, truth. And listen, I'm preaching to me, and y'all are just listening in. But where we turn in our moments of distress reveals what we really think about him. Where we turn and what we do in distress and in trial and in crisis and in extremity, that reveals what we really think of him, how much, if at all, we actually trust him. And I don't like saying that because it tells me what I'm really like, but it's true. And and the truth is that sometimes we really are, as believers, we're guilty of telling Jesus what he can and can't do and how he can and can't work. We do it every time we pray and tell Jesus, this is how it's got to work out. This is what you have to do. We do it when maybe we aren't going to be that strict about it, but we prayerfully come to Jesus and we give him the options. Well, Lord, here's the fix I'm in. There's door number one and door number two and door number three. Which one is it? And we forget that his thoughts are higher than my thoughts and his ways are higher than my ways, and he's a mystery. And he's thought of things that I'll never even come up with, options. And we do it when we're in extremity and need and we just decide. We already know how it's going to turn out, so we don't bother going to him with it at all. We just know the way these things go. The relationship can't be fixed. The hurt can't be healed. The sin can't be forgiven. The problem can't be solved. We tell Jesus what he can and can't do. Now, maybe what you're thinking is I'm arguing for a spirit of presumption in prayer. I am not a name it and claim it guy. That's not in the Bible. But what I am arguing against is a spirit of dismissal in our prayers. It says there's just some stuff Jesus won't ever do. There's some stuff he can't do. There's some problems he can't solve. And so I'm giving up. And I'm not going to bring it to him anymore. I think that's just as dangerous because we can't know for sure how God's going to answer our prayers when God's going to answer our prayers how he's going to meet us in our places of need I do know this he's already given us what we need most right based on the story of the woman he's given us rescue redemption from our sins and based on the story of Jairus he's given us the hope of resurrection that someday he's going to grab your hand and say child get up let's go you have that hope, that promise as a believer. And you know, all we need to do to get that for the first time or be reminded of it for the millionth time is do what the two people in the story did here, come to the feet of Jesus, believing that he is the answer. Because the big idea of the message this morning is, is really this, as, as simple as it sounds, is that we are never, we never go wrong when we bring our needs to Jesus, never. We will never go wrong, we will never do wrong when we bring our needs to Jesus. That's where they've got to go. And Father, sometimes we would admit that's the most difficult thing for us to do because we think we're in charge. We think we have some control. We think we can work it out or at least we can help you work it out for us. Father, we confess, all of us, I think, have been brought, I'm sure, to points in our lives where we say, whatever God is doing, it is a a mystery to me. The times you say wait, the times you say no, The times you ask us to take a step of faith that that we really don't want to have to take. And all along you're saying, trust me. Trust me a little bit more. Trust me a whole lot more. And all the time, you've got this perfect track record, Lord. And I forget that. We forget that. That there is this perfect track record of a God who has never failed to come to the rescue of his people. Father, some of us are carrying heavy loads this morning and others of us are doing great. You're sufficient for all of it. On our best day, we're never beyond the need for your grace. Father, on our worst day, we're never beyond the reach of it. Thank you that that's so. Thank you that it's so, not because we say so, but because Jesus made it so. That at the cross, he accomplished our redemption. And that through the cross, he promises not only eternal life, but everything necessary to live this life here right now for your glory. Father, we give you our storms and our trials and our questions and the mysteries. Father, keep us humbly at the feet of Jesus. Take the things of truth spoken here this morning and seal them up in our hearts and take all the rest and let it slip away so that we leave savoring and trusting Jesus only in whose name we pray. Amen.